This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 254 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. This episode tonight may be on our story a little bit shorter than normal, but trust me, by the time you've heard the end of this story, you're going to probably have all that you can handle of it. So mm. <laughs> you're probably going to be thankful that it's a little bit shorter. Oh. Oh my God! Just, it's it's, a, a bad it's thing kind or of a, thing? it's just kind of a unique story. So no. I'm going to give a disclaimer before we get into everything else. There, are, it's there's some very adult things that go on in this story. Uh, animal sacrifices, that type of stuff. Some of it's pretty graphic. So I'm just going to tell you ahead of time. If that's not for you, you might want to go ahead and turn it off. And if you listen with your kids. Uh, maybe you listen to it first and then go back and re-listen with your kids if you want to just to see, you know, if your kids are mature enough to handle it. So, Am I mature enough to handle no, it? No, you're not. Oh. You're not. I already know how this episode is going to go. But. Oh, no. So anyways, obviously we want to thank all of our military and our civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank all of you for what you do every single day. Yes, we should remember them every day. And just um, thank you guys for all you do for our country. Your sacrifices that you make, we love you and pray for you guys every single day. And hopefully you all come home safe. Right. And then obviously when it comes to mental stability these days, it's tough. Uh, There's just a lot going on. I saw a new poll that just came out in the last couple of days that said that people are concerned about so many different things in our country, whether it be COVID, whether it be violence, whether it be... Uh, politics it's just like everybody's up in arms about something and it just makes it extremely tough for some people to deal Mm -hmm. especially if they don't you know kind of keep it bottled up so remember to reach out to your friends don't wait for them to reach out to you because that call may never come you may end up getting a call that you don't want uh, about the passing of somebody that took their own life so you know do what you can to prevent those kind of things by reaching out to your friends on a regular basis if you know they're struggling. Yes, Ubi, Jerry and I are always here for you guys, and so is the group. You know, like he said, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. We are, we want to hear your stories. We want to see if we can help in any way. Um, if you don't want to go that route, you can call the 800 number at 800-273-8255, or you can text them at 741-741, and they will be there for you as well. And just to give you an example of how the littlest things make a difference, we had a, uh, a truck driver send us a message the other day and say that, you know, he's he's never really been suicidal, but he's battled depression, especially after anxiety attacks. And he had an anxiety attack, and usually he likes to lean on his wife, but he wasn't around his wife at the time. His first thought was to reach out to us, and as he 
tried to look up the phone numbers and the email and stuff to be able to contact us. He said it's like he didn't even need to contact us. It just it went away just knowing that there was somebody there that he could talk to. Mm -hmm. So that's the key is just letting your friends and family members know that, hey, if you need to talk, I'm there. Right. Sometimes that's just comforting and it will fix the problems. So. Absolutely. All right. As usual, this episode is brought to you by El Yucateco Hot Sauce. It is the number one habanero-based hot sauce in the United States. Top 10 out of all hot sauces in the United States. We had some, I put some last week in the deviled eggs that we had uh, a cookout and had some friends over. And I put some El Yucateco mm -hmm. Chipotle in with the deviled eggs That's and a little smoked paprika. Yeah, it was really good. Flavor. And always remember that you can get El Yucateco at most of your big name grocers out there. If not, you can always pick it up online, elyucateco.com. You can get apparel. I say that, it just makes me sound... It does sounds weird, don't it? It does. Mm -hmm. But you can get hats and shirts and all kinds of other stuff, bottle openers, you name it. And it's top of the line stuff, guys. Yeah, it's this really nice. This is good nice. quality, good quality merchandise. Mm -hmm. And you can get hot sauce there, believe it or not. I don't believe it. Crazy. Stop. <laughs> but <laughs> you guys go there, put in the code Hillbilly Horror, and you're going to save 10% on your entire purchase. Yeah. So thank you, you Kateko, for sponsoring our podcast. Yes, thank you so much. All right, Tracy, let's jump into this. Okay. This is, uh, it's really a tough subject to cover because we're going to get in to some crazy details of what goes on. Because before this thing's over, I'm going to take you step by step by everything that happens in this black mass in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Okay. A satanic black mass. Okay. And, and fitting for this episode, we're going to have Zevin Odelberg on from Kinda Murder. You've heard about him the last two weeks. Yes. And he actually, I got him on the show. He tells some really cool stories. Oh, so good. you're going to have fun with that. But that'd be the second half of the show. But it kind of murdery, kind of fits in with what we're doing tonight. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, our story... Like I said, it's it's not our typical story that we covered here, but I found it very interesting, and I feel like our audience will really like this story. So I ran across an article that spoke in detail about a satanic black mass that takes place in Mexico every year. After reading the article, I dug up some more info on the black mass. I was amazed at what I read, and to be honest, even though none of this should have really been surprising to me, I guess seeing it laid out with so much detail, it did kind of creep me out a little bit. Oh, man. If it's creeped you out, then I'm in for it. <laughs> I want to point out, like I said, that this story does involve the mentioning of animal sacrifices. So if it's something that you have an issue with, now's a good time to maybe skip ahead till the second half of the show. Okay. See you later. Because <laughs> this is definitely a more serious topic. And uh, like I said, it might not be kid-friendly. All right. So are we ready to get started? I guess. You're just bound <laughs> and determined to make me cry. I always said this is going to make you cry. Yeah. Well, if anything that happens to animals will make me cry. No, this is true. So the Black Mass is held yearly by a devil-worshipping cult. It originated in 1970 and has grown in popularity steadily over the last 51 years. It's held in Catamaco, Mexico, on the first Friday of every March. 
Catamaco is a lakeside town on Mexico's Gulf Coast, and it's in the state of Veracruz. People come from all over the world to witness this black mass, and some come here in search of spiritual experiences. Each year, there are a handful of people who give their soul over to Satan in front of a large crowd for various reasons. That's not a good idea, people. Idea. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to get into some of those reasons here in a little bit. But it's safe to say that not everyone who attended the Mass, just for curiosity reasons, are glad that they did. The details that I'm going to share with you are from the 2015 Black Mass that was held. Horrified tourists have told of the shock and disgust after attending the Satanic Worshipping Black Mass in Mexico. They looked on as chickens and goats were sacrificed. The blood was then poured over participants who had pledged their soul to Satan. The worshippers at the event indulge in brutal animal sacrifice, dance around burning pentagrams, and then disappear into a cave. In this cave is a large statue of Satan and a group of shaman. This is where the participants, or as I'm going to call them from from this point forward, the uh, penitents, because you'll see that a lot of them, they're trying to make amends for something. But this is where inside that cave, they make their oath to Satan. But these penitents somehow think that by giving their soul to Satan, that they can somehow right or wrong. And you're going to see more as we discuss individuals in a little bit about why some of the reasons that people would do this. Randall Sullivan, he's an American who witnessed the mass in 2015. He was visibly shaken by what he had seen. He said that they didn't just sacrifice the animals, they tortured them first. He said that it was if the pain and suffering was actually part of the experience, and there's no doubt that there's a dark power in blood sacrifices. He ended with the startling statement, the next step would be human sacrifice, and frankly, I think these people have already done it. Wow. Another American expressed similar concern. Michelle Gomez from Austin, Texas said that the ritual was disgusting. The fact that they would do that to those defenseless animals is sickening and makes me scared about the lengths that they would go to in order to see the devil. So you might say, okay, why are these people coming to the mass then if they're appalled and disgusted? Well, you would think that they might have done a little bit of research ahead of time. And, yeah. you know, like I found out about it. Wasn't that hard? Right. To, but, you know, I didn't try. If they're going to travel there to see it, they obviously should know what it's about, I would think. But apparently that's not the case. Now, the reason Michelle came there, though, she said that she's a psychic and she came to the ceremony in an attempt to improve on her psychic ability. She says that her ability has helped her locate over 100 kidnap victims. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. She, now, it's important to know that she just witnessed it and she didn't partake in the mass. She was just there. Yeah, just, yeah. Yeah, watching. Yeah. In an interview next to a burning pentagram, (laughs) Michelle Gomez, with tears in her eyes, said, It makes me scared for myself to think I've witnessed this. 
they need to stop these rituals. If they can kill an animal in the name of purification, what other links will they go to? Yep. All right, sounds set goes. All right, so we've heard what some bystanders think. These people witnessed the mass, and most of them had an issue with it. But there are some that didn't. And we'll talk about them later on why they didn't have an issue with it. But what about the organizers of the event? Well, the gentleman who organizes this event and has for the last several years, his name is Enrique Vernon. He organizes the Mass every year just west of town at his ceremonial grounds on White Monkey Mountain. Enrique says, Our black magic stems from Native American Omeka culture. He went on to say that they are experts in calling upon the devil and the dark powers. Enrique is a chief shaman, so he takes the lead on these things. He wears a dead anteater on his head. Ew, crap, that's gross. <laughs> his office is decorated with figures of skeletal saint death and pentagrams and pelts of exotic animals. Oh my gosh, what a sick head. He says that people come to their devil summoning ceremonies when they want to achieve change in their lives. Some come to ask Satan to give them success in their future, but others come to get over their very difficult past. So what about some of these penitents, as I said I was going to call them, who come here to pledge their soul to Satan? On this day, there were eight of them. And I want to point this out um, because I don't really know. I tried to find out, but I kept seeing the number eight here. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's because of there being eight penitents mm -hmm. that participated or not, but there were eight of them. There were eight shamans or priests. And then, you know, some eight comes up a few other times yeah. in there. Well, there was eight sacrificial animals. Well, there you go. So I don't know if it's like, if there had been seven, would it all been seven? seven. I, I mean, don't, yeah. I don't know. Maybe they have to have a certain amount. Right. I'm not sure. So on this day, one of the participants was... Alejandro Montez and his wife, Gloria Espina. Now, they traveled here from Monterey in northern Mexico. Why? To pledge their souls to Satan in exchange for a happy marriage. Think about that. Dude, just move on from each other and find somebody without having to give yourself to the devil. Alejandro said that he had tried everything. And this was the last resort. Apparently, he had had an affair, and it put a huge strain on their marriage. And he is willing to put his soul on the line to prove his commitment to his wife. Why she got to put her soul on the line, though? I mean, I don't understand that. Why should she, You're exactly right. Why should she have to do that? I mean, he's already cheated on her once. Go ahead and get out of there. Find you somebody else. Right. So, Tracy. What? Are you ready to hear about what happens during the actual ceremony? No, I'm not. As said before, there was a total of eight satanic priests who had come from all across Mexico. Hori Ra from southern Mexico was one of them. Hori wears a necklace made of human finger bones. Oh, Lord. I don't know where he got the bones from, either. Hori starts the mass off by saying... Tonight, 
we are going to open the portal to another dimension so those who ask to communicate with Satan will be heard. The ceremony begins with a group of teenage girls dressed in all black underwear carrying the terrified sacrificial animals along a candlelit path to the altar. As they reach the altar, the priests who are there waiting there with their uh, for the animals, they throw handfuls of putrid herbs onto burning charcoal pits that are right there at the altar. It's also important to mention that these girls must be virgins and they have to both be mentally and physically pure. So this is according to Roselia Belly. Okay, but they're not mentally pure because why would they be walking down there knowing what's going to happen to these animals? Well, but certain religions see that as part of their religion, like Santeria and some of the other ones that they, you know, that's just part of it. They don't see that as being bad. They see it as doing something for a religious purpose. Terrible. So this was according to Roselia Belly. It just so happens that she's a black witch who uses strong tobacco and piercing screams in her own exorcism ceremonies, which she chooses, which from what I understand, she charges about $200 an hour for that. That's a lot of money in Mexico. Yeah. It's a lot of money here for an hour. How much? $200 an hour to do an exorcism. Mm. Okay. So now the eight people who came here to give their souls to Satan are asked to kneel before the eight priests. The priests then wring the necks and remove the heads of the chicken and pour the blood over the kneeling penitent's head. Well, I can't really say too much about that because I've watched my grandmother chop the head off a chicken. Okay, then did but she... But she did not pour the blood on anything. I was going to say, there is still, a difference. And I always thought that was horrible. Enrique Verdon tells the crowd that the blood pumped from a still-beating heart is the purest form of energy. So that's why they do it right there on the spot. These animals have to die so we can continue our spiritual work. Their blood will be offered up to the dark power. So the whole time that he's saying this, there's this thick smoke coming from the fiery altar that we talked about. Which, by the way, is the same place that they place the decapitated chickens once they are bled completely dry. Mm. Enrique continues, We are calling upon Satan, the prince of the earth, to appear before us. Now, I want to point out that sacrificing animals has been outlawed in the state of Veracruz, but it's still widely practiced in Satan-worshipping communities. And in rural areas, such as this place where this takes place at, this ritual is, there's not a whole lot that they do about it. So the the chief of police, Arturo uh, Bermudez Zanta, says, there's little that they can do to stop this if people want to make displays of cruelly murdering animals for the sake of satanic practices. They're going to do it whether it's legal or not. Well, I have to... Whatever. It's back to the ceremony. 
Enrique then says, This sacred blood gives us the energy and spiritual power we need to make our black magic. He says this as he slit the throat of the screaming goat, whose blood was then drained into a bronze jar and, and then passed around. Poor baby goat. We encourage our visitors to take this blood pumped from a still-beating heart and rub it into their skin in the name of purity. In total, like I said, eight animals were sacrificed in the ritual. After the sacrifices, the priest stood before a large burning pentagram and attempted to summon the devil through chants. They then took their eight pledges and disappeared into the underground cave that was decorated with upside-down crosses, animal carcasses, and a large statue of Satan with an erect penis. Why has Satan got a penis? I don't know. It's kind of like the little Nas video all over again. <laughs> <laughs> the eight priests gathered around each individual penitent. All eight participants then swore oaths that their soul now belonged to Satan. And if they broke their promises to Satan, then their spirits would be forfeited. So I don't get, I mean, like, let's say the one guy that wants to have a great marriage. Mm -hmm. So it's like, what is he supposed to be doing that would break it? Because, I mean, the way I understand things to work, if you give your soul to the devil... Once you die, then your soul goes. Mm -hmm. What would you be doing while you're alive that would break that oath? Because it says if you break that oath, then, you know, whatever you had, had wanted, that's going to go away. Like, I guess his marriage would fall apart or something. But what would he be doing that would break that oath? Unless mm -hmm. maybe he started going to church or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, maybe that's what it is. I'm not sure. The priest then screamed, Hail Lucifer following each new oath. Then they prostrate in front of the statue of Lucifer. Prostrate is just uh, laying laying down on your belly and just basically giving yourself up like, uh, like some people would kneel before mm -hmm. something that is just totally giving yourself up and laying on the ground. Okay. And on this satanic statue, by the way, they had poured already all of the remaining blood from the sacrificial animals that they hadn't used. Hori Ra then tells each of the participants that if they don't fulfill their promise to Satan, that he will take back everything from you. Hori then wipes sacrificial blood from the statue onto each of their foreheads. He told each, you are taking a serious dark curse. We mentioned Alejandro earlier. He was there to, trying to get his uh, marriage stronger. He said afterwards, I felt terrified during the entire process. He said that he did this so that he would not be unfaithful to his wife again. Well, first of all, you are you that big of a, a horn dog that you have to sacrifice your soul to the devil in order to be faithful? Uh-huh. He said that once it was done, he felt strong and he believed that things would improve. Oddly enough, his wife would not be interviewed. <laughs> 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 so I told you at the beginning that not everybody who watched the events unfold 
were as horrified as some of the others. Randall Sullivan, he came from Portland, Oregon, and he had heard about this mass through his involvement in spiritual circles. Now, he wanted to know how these shamans actually worked their magic. He said that they were uh, the only people that he knew of that actually mixed a black and white magic together, which was like mixing God and the devil. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I didn't hear any white magic in anything that I listened to. Hmm. Anything about that, I didn't see. So I don't really know. But that was his comments. And that's why he was there. Samuel Casella, who came from Milan, Italy, said that it was something very mystical as far as he was concerned. He expected to see something incredible, and he did. That's crazy. It is crazy. I mean, that, I just cannot imagine that these things go on. I can't. <laughs> I mean, it's just it almost sounds like made up or who is so crazy to do such things. I thought they were playing Jeopardy. Who is oh. so crazy to do these things? Them people over there. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah. It's obvious that you would not attend a black mass. Of course. But what did you think about everything that went on? Did it surprise you at all? Or does it is that kind of how you would think a black mass would be carried out? It didn't really surprise me that much. I just don't understand about the whole... Animal sacrifice. Well, that, because that's just horrible. And... That either this guy was crazy or he just really loved his wife so much that he's willing to sacrifice his own life to the devil. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, he's probably not even all that. I mean, I I love you too, but there's no possible way that I'm donating my, you know, not donating. And I would not want you to do that. That's just, it's just so wrong. You know, there's just uh, so many other options you know what go find you somebody else let her find somebody else be done with it you don't you don't go to that desperate measure because apparently you aren't happy with her to begin with or you wouldn't have cheated right that's exactly what i say and you know what and and let me kind of correct something because i kind of doubled up on something at the beginning of the story i told you about randall sullivan Mm -hmm. and i talked about how he said that like the sacrificing that the pain and Torture was almost part of it, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it, he he said he was kind of horrified by that. But he also was the same guy that made the comments at the end that he wanted to see how the black and the white magic. So I listed him under the horrified and not horrified because there were parts of it that horrified and other parts that he was, you was know, interested oh, in, interested in. Yeah. So. Ooh, I don't know. It makes no sense. I'm just glad I'm a country girl. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Whole life on the farm. (laughs) Hey, whatever it takes. And I love my animals, so. All right, guys, let's take a real quick break from our sponsor. And we're going to be back to uh, tell you some uh, little tidbits of information and housekeeping. And then we've got, obviously, Zevin Odeberg from Kind of Murder. You guys will really like him. He's a fun guy. He's got, like, the perfect radio podcast voice. So, All right, Trace, so... Just uh, We mentioned this last week, but I can't believe how quick this has taken off. Our five-year anniversary show in Louisville, Kentucky, August 21st, only a couple months away. I put 100 tickets on sale, and we've sold 30 of them the first two or three days that it was out. I know. Isn't that great? Yeah. It's so exciting. 
Can't wait to see everybody. Of course, we got Brohio and mm-hmm. uh, our buddies from down in Louisville. We, we drink, drink and, and we, we know things. things. Tom and Andrea Payne, husband and wife team as well. Uh, Rob and Nick are a husband and wife team. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's gonna be a fun show it, it'll be it'll be fun having having those guys yeah. the cruise is going great don't forget about the cruise um that's still going on we just hadn't mentioned as much because you know it's over your way mm-hmm. we've got a handful i think 12 tickets left for saint augustine mm-hmm. and then we've got just a couple of tickets left for the investigation of saint augustine lighthouse the night before all of these shows and I, I I should mention because I kind of kind of keep forgetting, but Galveston and Dallas are also in October. Uh, you guys jump on there, see who's going to be there. Justin Rimmel from Mysterious Circumstances being Galveston. We've got our own Leslie Fear from Fear of the Week, and mm-hmm. because I want to know, is going to be in Dallas with us. It's going to be a fun deal. It is going to be fun. We're very excited for this. And it's going to be here before you know it. And we got other shows too. Go to the website, and you can get any merchandise. You can get the book. That I've got out, and you can uh, check out all the, the live events we got, and the cruise has its own special page. Show sure enough. What you got over there, Princess Angel Lips? Oh, lovely. Well, this week in iTunes, we have Mojo Lobster, Officer Glenn, and his canine partner Gaza. Thank you so much for your nice review. Yeah, that was a that was really cool. You know, and we got and I didn't do it tonight. I usually think all of our military, civil servants, and animals. Oh yeah, but you in, know, you know, the night I didn't do it is when we talk about the <laughs> officer with his canine buddy. Well, you know, we always think of you guys as well. And uh, Mako Dale and C P Castles, thank you guys for your reviews. They were so awesome. And it means the world to us every time y'all every time y'all leave a review. Our Patreon this week is Paula Barker. Thank you, beautiful, for um, supporting us. We appreciate you more than you know. And you guys are just wonderful. You never let us down. Yep. Keep in mind, you can jump on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. That will get you at least four bonus episodes on top of ad-free episodes. So like a couple of weeks ago, we had like four or five different ads. Yeah, we did. And we take all those out when we put those up on Patreon. Mm-hmm. So if you don't like ads for a dollar a month, you can get four bonuses and get rid of all the ads all at the same time. Absolutely. You guys are amazing. We just appreciate you all so, so much. You have no clue. Even, you know, when we're not doing the show or whatever, uh, Jerry and I just talk about how blessed we are and how many friends we've made through this whole process and... We're just blessed. All right. Let's listen to Zevin Oderberg and Kind of Murdery. Hey, guys, I'm excited. I've got uh, Zevin Oderberg on the show, and we talked to you a couple weeks ago about uh, Tracy and I listening to this podcast on our way back from Chattanooga called Kind of Murdery. And uh, I, I had to reach out to Zevin because I was like, this this podcast is probably my favorite out of all the new ones that we started listening to. And it is new. It's only got like eight episodes out and I can't be more excited to have him on the show. Thank you for taking the time to be able to uh, reach out and then talk with us for a little bit. Oh, oh, Jerry, thank you. I I can't tell you how much it means to me to be here. I I love your show as well. I I listen to it all the time. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, I, 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 one thing I wanted to mention to you was that I'm from California. Uh, most people think California is just San Francisco or L.A., but the truth is I grew up in Northern California in the middle of the woods off the power grid 
all wood heating, wood cooking, solar and water power, first gas generator, then solar when I was a teenager, used to chop a box of wood before dinner every night. So <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an honest to God hillbilly. And there are hillbillies all over America. And you know, your show resonates with all of us in a way that's really beautiful and makes us feel like part of a big community. And uh, I just, I just really appreciate that about Hillbilly Horror Stories. And I, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. We appreciate it. Now your show had uh, some very unique, humble beginnings. Tell me about how Kind of Murdery, the idea of Kind of Murdery started. Well, you know, uh, everybody has different parenting styles, I guess you could say. And my wife and I, when my daughter was six on spring break, we live in L.A. and we took my daughter and her best friend to Vegas for spring break. You know, and you're driving there in the middle of the night and you're picturing all the, the glitz, the glamour, the lights, the gambling, and you just kind of zip right through the desert to get where you're going. But then on the drive home in the daylight, with that glamour of night removed, you really sort of see what you drove through. And what you drove through is often just this wasteland of, you see these communities that are Airstream trailers, probably meth labs, some of them probably homes, and you think, you think they're abandoned, but then you notice, well, you know, one window's boarded up, another one's not, there's a dog barking in the yard, you know, I think somebody lives there. Well, we were, we were getting low on gas and the kids were getting hungry. And, and from the highway, I, I saw a Coco's diner and a gas station that looked totally normal. So we pull off the highway and we pull up and I get about, I get about 50 yards out and I realize, oh no, wait a minute, this place is completely abandoned. And, and not only that, but, but it's just covered in, in graffiti and a, a lot of it just terrible graffiti, whether it's, uh, you know, white supremacist hate symbols, curse words, giant pictures of human genitalia, you know, certainly not anything appropriate for the six-year-old girls in my car. So I hop right back in the car, sort of squeal the tires backing up out to the highway. And I, I turn to them all and I say to them, I say to them, well, geez. Uh, that place was kind of murdery. Um, <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know, that would be a really fun idea for a show to, to go to these abandoned kind of places and, and learn about who they are or, or, and who they were and what might have happened there. Like, was there, a, was there a seminal event that turned them from a happy community into a ghost town? Like, what are the stories out, out here in these abandoned towns in the desert? And then fast forward a year or two, and it's, it's the start of the uh, pandemic, late April, and I, I call up a friend of mine who's got a creative production company, and he lives in New York City. And I just called him because he's my daughter's godfather, and we're very close, and I was just concerned about the family. I said, are, are you guys safe? Are you well? You know, and he said, yeah, we are. And I, I start, I've started this company that focuses on crime content. And without even realizing I was pitching a show, I said to him, oh, really? I got a, I got a crime show idea for you. It's called Kind of Murdery, Ghost Towns of the Mojave Desert. What you do is you go from town to town, these abandoned places, and you find the strangest, wildest stories of the things that happen there. And, and the reason we call it Kind of Murdery is it's not a it's a true crime podcast yes but not not in that serious sort of forensic way it's more more conversational 
more humorous. Um, and, and so we're not just talking about murders. We're trying to find just kind of the most interesting, strangest things that happened. Sometimes it's a murder. Sometimes it's a robbery. Sometimes it might just be something else bizarre. So that's, that's kind of murdery. That's a, that's a pretty, pretty good explanation of what, uh, what it is. You guys have a lot of fun on there and I enjoyed it. Like I said, it's, it's something that we enjoy listening to on our, and we had a four and a half hour drive back and that's all we listen to. So normally after about two hours, I'm tired of something ready to throw on some music or something else, but you know, it kept our interest. So that says a lot. That's too sweet of you to say. And you know, one thing I was curious to know from you too, and something that I always think about when I listen to podcasts is finding stories, right? Uh, how, how do people find these stories in an age where it seems like anything can just maybe be Googled or, or what have you? And that's something I puzzled over a lot. And, and where I landed, what we do is we look at um, essentially microfiche, but PDFs of old actual newspapers. And, and so I, I try to find stories that, that aren't out there on Wikipedia or, or, or something. And uh, one of the things I love about it, because I've always loved history, is I love diving into the artifact of this actual primary sourced paper that was there at the time of the event. And another thing that comes out of that, you know, is whenever you're doing a, and you know this better than anyone, because you and your you and Tracy are so empathetic and you care about your audience and you care about mental health. And we really appreciate that about you guys. And so we were concerned, you know, where you, if you're going to talk about a murder and maybe a lot of strange, even funny things happen during that murder, but you never want to feel like you're, you're mocking somebody's pain or you're mocking a, a victim or, or their family who might be listening to the show and feel like you don't take that seriously. So the part of how we tried to solve that was by telling these historical stories that happened long enough ago that hopefully you're not, you know, hurting the heart of a person who might be listening to your show. So I think that was another advantage besides our love of history of just d diving in that way. How, Go ahead. Oh yeah. How, what, what, what do you, how do you find your story? You have so many wonderful stories. Okay, do you mind sharing with me a little bit about your process? Well, let me, let me say this. First of all, you may claim to be a hillbilly, but the fact that you said microfiche instead of microfish tells me you have grown out of some of it <laughs> over the years. <laughs> Just a hillbilly that went to school, sir. That's it. <laughs> Uh, it, it gets harder to find the interesting stories as we go, because now, I mean, we're, we just did episode 252 and wow. yeah, everybody knows Winchester mystery house and they, you know, they know about the Amityville and not, but occasionally, you know, after, after about a hundred of those stories, you start running out of the big ones where there's a tons of information and it gets tougher and tougher to research. And, you know, we found, uh, I started diving a lot more into books and uh, finding collections of stories. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm extremely cheap, so I refuse to pay full price for most books <laughs> out there. You know, if it's, a, if it's somebody puts a book out that I want, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. But if it's just like, I'm just trying to find something interesting, we have a, a place in, in town that sells used books and I'll, we've got two locations and I'll frequent them on a regular basis and just see what's there. And I'll pick up four or five, six books a week and, and, uh, I'll just see yeah. if there's something through there. Now, sometimes that book might give me a, a three-page story. I can't do an episode on that. But if it piques my interest, I might be able to research and find enough other information 
to go with it. So it's usually a combination, but I, I lean more towards books and then following up with extra information uh, from the internet. Like for example, uh, we did some stories on a hotel and the most of the information mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. from the hotels came from the books. Uh, I found a, a maybe a couple little nuances that I didn't see in the book online, but then we would pull up like uh, Travelocity uh, reviews or TripAdvisor reviews where people had haunted experiences there, and then we combine that. So it's been a it's been a combination. I know sometimes our listeners get frustrated because the stories aren't quite as deep a dive as they used to be in the early days. But as you run out of the big stories, there's just usually not as much information out there to do as deep a dive. Well, I've never been frustrated. I think you guys do do a beautiful job of fleshing out all the parts of your stories. Uh, and I and I love ghost stories. And, you know, occasionally we're lucky enough on on kind of murdery to run into a ghost story as well. In fact, in the um, in the current episode that we just dropped uh, last week, there um, there's a the, it opens with a ghost story where our guest uh, found himself, much to his surprise, that working in a haunted building. So I, I hope that if folks will turn into tune into Kind of Murdery, if they check out the the episode about Caliente with our guest Niall Madden, the show will actually open open with a ghost story about the the old Rams building in Los Angeles. That's the the football team, the Rams. Nice. So you guys uh, have been fortunate to only be having eight, eight episodes you've had some pretty big guests on so far well we, we've been fortunate to run into some really kind people like yourself jerry <laughs> we, and i'm so thankful to you for being willing to come on the show but yeah you know we we have been lucky in that way and you know part of that is that i i have been very blessed in my life i spent 13 years working in the entertainment industry for some uh some big companies and, and were, was able to make some friends that way, but also just through my life, through school and, and university. Uh, so, and actually some of them are, a couple of them have been parents of, uh, of, of my daughter's friends. It's, some of these people are just people that I have been blessed in my life to, to form deep friendships with and people that were willing, like you are now, to, to share their time with me and, and really connect with me and come on the show. So all I can really do is express how how thankful I am to to have have the friends and the people that love me around me. That's 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 what I benefit from the most. So speaking speaking of which, uh, Cabin in the Woods is one of my favorite movies, and you've had a, a special guest on twice from that movie. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, uh, Fran, Fran Kranz, who's a who's a brilliant actor, uh, fantastic in Cabin in the Woods, and he's actually now directing as well. He 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 directed his first movie called Mass that came out at Sundance this year and was actually chosen by Entertainment Weekly as, as the number one movie at, at the Sundance Film Festival. It's been phenomenally well reviewed. I think it's over ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So he really. Uh, I, I've known him for years. He surprised me in the sense that I knew he's a great actor. I didn't know he was also a great screenwriter and a great director. Uh, that that'll make you a little bit jealous, uh, but <laughs> I kid. But actually, you know, Fran and I were uh, were roommates in college. That's how I met. So he's actually one of my closest, longest, longest held friendships in, in my life. Um, we we met um, we met in uh, freshman year English class when they asked us to do a reading of Midsummer Night's Dream. And I, I coming out of high school, thought I had all these acting chops and I thought I was going to 
you know, <laughs> get get at this round table and, and blow everybody away. And Fran had not said one word in the class for the entire couple months we'd been in there. And so the teacher sort of plucked him out to kind of to kind of poke him a little bit and be like, I'm going to make you talk, guy. <laughs> and, and sure enough, he, he sits down and he's reading Puck and, and the guy starts to read. And the hair stood up on my arms and I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, is this person talented? And here here I thought here I thought I was a sturgeon in the ocean and I'm I'm a I'm a sardine at best. I, I was so I was so impressed with them that I, you know, I I actually waited outside a class, a little little stalkery of me. And I and I walked up and I introduced myself and I said, hey, you know, my name's Zevin. I just wanted to say you did amazing some amazing uh, Shakespeare reading you did. And, uh, you know, I'd love, I'd love to, I want to, I just introduced myself kind of probably stammered a little bit like I am right now. And uh, we hit it off famously and we've just been close, close friends ever since. Um, and, you know, we went on a couple cross country road trips in, in college. Uh, one of which is we talk about on the show as well, but so that's, that's how I know him. It was just uh just serendipitous good luck. Somebody I met going to school and uh, became one of my closest friends. Nice. Now you got a couple of stories lined up for us. So I sure do. So yeah, I'd love to tell you a story. This first story I want to tell you about, it's called dog man versus tooth fairy. So, you know, they, they, they put out, what is it? Godzilla versus Kong. You got right. Mothra. You have all these legendary matchups of, of, of beasts. And so this one, this is a true, 100% true story called Dogman versus Tooth Fairy. Uh, let, let me go ahead and, and dive into it. And I just wanted to mention, in case anybody wants to go make sure I'm not making everything up. <laughs> Fact uh, checker. Yeah, absolutely. This story first appeared on uh, Sunday, March 25th. 1983 in the San Bernardino County Sun. So uh, here we go. Dogman versus Tooth Fairy. This takes place in Hinkley, California. Uh, some of you may remember Hinkley as the town made famous by uh, Julia Roberts in her Oscar-winning movie Aaron Brockovich. Yep. It's really a it's really a sad story of Hink from Hinkley. Um, the PG&E gas company had built giant holding tanks that they sprayed with a chemical called hexavalent chromium to uh, prevent rust. And that is a very toxic chemical that leaked into the water supply and created a lot of health problems for the town and has essentially today turned it into a, into a ghost town. Um, and, and so, but anyhow, this story happened in Hinkley and you know, there, there's that old saying, there's something in the water. And so we couldn't help but wonder without wanting to, to laugh at anybody's pain, but we couldn't help but wonder if that wasn't a little bit literal in Hinkley as we looked at some of the, the strange things that happened over the years. Is it possible that, you know, there's this, there's this poison in the water that make people act, act a little crazy? And then, so that's sort of the setting, the setting for, uh, for Dogman versus Tooth Fairy. So here's what happens. It's, uh, it's April of, uh, of, 1983, and a 44-year-old man named Frank Ray Jessup, I'm sorry, 44-year-old man named Frank Ray Alsup, who is from, who's from uh, Mayberry, Newberry, excuse me, Newberry, which is the town next to Hinkley, he's lost his dog. Now, it's worth mentioning that uh, 
out there, not far from Hinckley in the desert, living in a camper shell, is a guy named James Davies Rowan. We got two guys with three names here. <laughs> now, James Davies Rowan is known in all the, all the nearby towns, Hinckley included, as the dog man. The reason he's called the dog man is he lives out there in his camper shell with no less than 71 dogs. 71. You got to ask yourself, why in the world would somebody need 71 dogs? Well, Davies, Davies Rowan ran a kennel in Fontana uh, for his, his career. And when he retired, rather than wanting to get away from the business, he moved out to Hinkley and he, to some extent, recreated that kennel experience by having these 71 dogs. So he's known for being kind of a kooky old man who's got all these dogs. So when Allsup, Allsup's dog disappears, this 44-year-old guy I mentioned at the start, and he, because Davies Rowan, the dog man, seems to collect dogs like, like iron filings to a magnet, Davy's first thought is to go ask him if maybe he's seen the dog. Um, so he does. Now I should mention, because you know, a lot of times when there's a real eccentric person in, in a small community, people start to tell tell gossip about them, make up stories about them, rumors about them. Maybe they're true, maybe they're not. But there's two beliefs in town about what the heck Davies is doing with all these dogs he's got out there. About, about half the people think that he's ranching those dogs, meaning he's literally eating them. He's raising them like cattle as a food source, which is, of course, just horrible for any of us that ever had a dog that we love. And then the other half of them think something equally awful, which is that he's doing some kind of terribly deviant uh, sexual thing with the dogs. So... There seems to there's a consensus that uh, that Davies out there with his 71 dogs is up to no good. Uh, but there's a difference of opinion on just what kind of awful no good he's up to. So Alsup goes and he says, I'm going to go ask Davies if he's got my dog. And of course, because I'm sure Alsup knows the rumors, he's a little concerned about it. Right. So he gets out there. He gets out there to Davies camper shell and he says to him, he says, hey, you know, uh, James, James, have you, uh, have you seen my, my dog's missing? Have you seen it? And, and rather than just say, well, no, I haven't. The dog man replies, well, yes, I, I did actually. Uh, I had, I had your dog, I had your dog, but, uh, but he died and he's gone. I don't have him anymore. At, at this point also becomes very upset. Of, of course, he's like, what do you mean? You had my dog, but he died. Well, well, I, I, I mean, maybe the guy just couldn't tell a lie like like George Washington or something. But why in the world would you say, well, sure, I had him, but he died. And he just, so what you buried him in your backyard, you know, so also gets very angry and he starts accusing Davies of eating his dog. It's like you ate my dog. You <laughs> ate my dog. And he gets really furious, but he doesn't just kill him right then and there. He, he leaves, but he goes into town. And he's very upset, and understandably so. And he starts telling everybody. He goes to the bars. He gets drunk. He starts telling everybody in town that that damn dog man, that Davies, he he ate my dog. He ate my damn dog. And so a couple weeks go by, 
And apparently also the guy whose dog was, he believes, eaten. He hooks up with a, a young woman, a 19-year-old woman named Ellen Forgia. And late one night, they go out there. Davies, Davies has got the girl with him, and he's got a shotgun. And he walks up to the camper shell, and he knocks on the door. And um, the dog man answers it. And right then and there, Alsop kills him with two shotgun blasts to the chest. Ooh. Bam. Dead. Uh, and then the next dog. He loved his dog. And, and, you know, we all love our dogs. And so it, maybe at this point in the story, maybe he seems almost a little sympathetic. I, I don't know. But <laughs> you got to hear what happens next. So he, the story that he's tells and, and will tell is that he went out there and he killed Davies because Davies ate his dog. Well, the next thing he does is he robs Davies of the money on Davies' body, which is only about $23. And then he steals a green box, a little green like knick-knack jewelry box. It's never, we know to this day, like, like the movie Seven, what's in the box? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know what's in the box. And then, then this is where it starts to get weird and you start to wonder a little bit about Alsup's side of the story. Alsup takes out a pair of pliers and he proceeds to rip out the gold-filling filled teeth of Davies, who he's just murdered. So he says it's a righteous vengeance killing for the eating of his dog, but he proceeds to steal the man's money the man's valuable box, and then remove the teeth, remove the man's teeth that have the feel, fillings in them. So I start to go, hmm, you know. So here, the next thing he does, uh, Alsop, he goes back into town, and he immediately goes out to the bars again, gets drunk, and starts bragging about how he killed the dog man. Not only that, he he how he he calls himself. The Newberry Tooth Fairy. He says, I, the two, I'm the Newberry Tooth Fairy, and I killed the dog man. Well, as you might expect, he gets arrested. That's crazy. He's gonna, yeah. <laughs> it's totally crazy. It's totally, totally crazy. So, and at this point, you're starting to think, well, okay, first of all, he robbed the guy. Secondly, he had this girl with him. We don't really know what that's about. Then he went back. He not and he robbed him so far as to rip his teeth out, and then he went back and he started bragging about the murder and gave himself a nickname. He's clearly so proud of it. You start to wonder: Well, it, was he actually motivated by vengeance for his dog? It sure really doesn't seem like it. So he gets arrested, and while he's in jail awaiting trial, he goes a step further. He writes letters to all of his friends and family and anybody who might have heard him talking about being the tooth fairy and killing the dog man and bragging about it, where he says, if you get called as a witness in my trial, lie, say you don't know anything. Fair and enough. then he goes, yeah, but he signs those letters, the Newberry tooth fairy. <laughs> Yeah, this guy's so, got some issues. He sure does. And here he is. He thinks he's going to get off by having his friends lie to lie about it. But here he ripped out the guy's gold-filled molars, and then he sides all those letters, which, of course, end up as evidence in the trial as the Newberry Tooth Fairy. 
So that's how it becomes Dog Man versus Tooth Fairy. Um, so Alsup, as it turns out, has multiple violent priors and is pretty quickly and easily convicted. They don't initially, um, for Gia, the 19-year-old girl, is going to be an accessory, but they decide not to go after her. They convict Alsup, for, and he gets something like 30 years. Um, but th- there's one other thing about this story that I want to talk about that I think where it gets really, really interesting, right? So I think, and I'm just going to go ahead and say it, and then I'm going to support it with some evidence. I think that it may very well be true that Davies was eating the dogs, that he may be the Hannibal Lecter of dogs, if you will. Now, now stay with me for a moment. Here's a man who spent his career running a kennel. So he had ample access to dogs. There would have been dogs that died. There was a, he had a vet on the site that, so again, there would have been dogs that died of natural causes of sickness, et cetera. So he would have had, or that supposedly died of, of natural cause. So he would have had ample access to, uh, his sort of hideous produce aisle, if you will. And perhaps he uh, developed a taste for a nice dog kidney blanched in a, in, in a, you know, a white wine cream sauce or something. And the reason I, I think that that might actually be the case that even though also the tooth fairy ripping out teeth might've been a terrible guy on his own. Here's what I want to, I want you to think about. You know, most of us have had a beloved dog, right? And, and it doesn't matter if that dog is a, is a little tiny chihuahua or a bull mastiff or a Rottweiler. If your dog loves you, your dog's going to protect you. You know, I, I go walking through a neighborhood. I walk by a fence, tall fence of a dog that can't even see me. That dog smells me. That dog starts going wild a lot of times, you know, and, uh, or, and everybody's had this experience. Even your little Scott, your little Jack Russell Terrier is going to try to bark the robber away. So how is it? Why is it that, a man with 71 dogs, somebody with a shotgun who intended him harm, and dogs can smell and sense that sort of thing, was able to sneak up on him unawares and kill him. Not one of those dogs barked. Not one of those dogs tried to attack Alsup. Not one of those dogs tried to protect Davies. Well, Interesting concept. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think... Dogs have an incredible sense of smell, right? So if Davies was eating those dogs, the rest of the dogs would have known it. They would have known. They would have been able to smell it on him, smell it on his breath. They would have been afraid of him. They would have hated him. So to me, if you're any kind of a good guy who treats your dogs in any kind of a good way and you've got 71 dogs and you live out in the middle of nowhere, there is no way on God's green earth that anybody with ill intent is going to be able to sneak up on you and catch you unawares. And so that that's, that's my thoughts on why I think that Davies probably was in fact eating those dogs, which is just awful. So that's, that's the story of a dog man versus tooth fairy. I, I got to be honest when you would, when you gave me the title, I wasn't sure where this was going to go. So it's very interesting. <laughs> And these are the kind of yeah, stories a, that you dig up. I mean, it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It's a. I, I always, I, I always am looking for a story where I, where I say to myself, 
gosh, I've never heard, read, or seen anything like that before. <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of times you feel like it's the same, it's different versions of the same things that happen all the time, right? My, a, a wise old friend of my father's once said, there's no such thing as news. It's just the same thing happening to different people. That's true. That's a good, <laughs> so, that's, that's a very true statement. Yeah. So when I'm looking for stories, when I see something that I feel like is absolutely a different thing, that's, that's, those are the stories I'm looking for. We're talking to uh, Zevin Odeberg, host of Kind of Murdery. And that's, I want to make sure we got the spelling on that. It's K-I-N-D-A, Murdery. Yes. For absolutely that's fun correct. show. Do you, do you have time for one more story? Oh, I, I would love, I would love to tell you, I'd love to tell you another story if, if, if you'd be willing to listen. Oh, I've got Thank it. I'm, so I'm ready. I've got my, All right. my earbuds in. Fantastic. All right. So we're going to go, we're going to go quite a bit further back in time here. Um, this story happened, this happened in a town called Ninoc up in the Antelope Valley. Ninoc is famous for being a town that's got half a volcano in it. What's half a volcano? Well, it's literally half a volcano. What happened was 20 some million years ago, there was such a big earthquake that it, it split a volcano in half. So one half's in Ninoc and the other half is some almost 200 miles north in a national park. So anyway, this is the place we are now. It's a place called Ninoc, California. And I want to tell you a story about a 19-year-old woman who's a mountain lion killer. And in my, in my opinion, she's a legend of the Old West. I mean, we talk about, we talk about Pecos Bill. We talk about Paul Bunyan. We talk about Johnny Appleseed. Well, young Helen Gookins, I think, deserves to be right up there in the pantheon with those heroes. And uh, let me tell you the story of why. So up there in Ninoc in the Antelope Valley, 19-year-old Helen Gookins is an Angora goat farmer. You know, Angora goats, their, their wool makes those, those beautiful sweaters mm -hmm. that women go to Neiman Marcus and pay a lot of money for. And as luxurious as a sweater might be, just imagine how much you love wearing it if it's sheared from the wool of your own goats. So uh, Helen, she's, she's got a close connection with these goats. And uh, over the course of a couple months, she starts noticing that her goats are gradually disappearing. First, she loses one, then two then another, but she doesn't have a short fuse, this woman. Uh, and so she doesn't do much about it at first, but then finally one day yet another goat disappears and she says, thinks to herself, damn it, that's one more cardigan gone, you know? And, <laughs> and so she hops on her mule, no saddle, side saddle like an Amazon warrior, not even so much as a, as a riding crop. She's got a psychic connection with that mule. She hops on her mule and she, uh, she goes to check out her goat herd and she's heading down a narrow path on, on along the side of a ravine and she's near an abandoned farmhouse, but it's an abandoned farmhouse that she's familiar with because in fact, she and her mother used to live there, but they don't any longer. She's getting close to this farmhouse on this narrow little path when all of a sudden her mule stops walking and her mule just won't budge. Now, I don't know if anybody's ever tried to move a mule that don't want to move, but uh, he ain't moving. <laughs> so Helen, they can be stubborn. Oh, indeed, <laughs> indeed. 
<laughs> oh man um apparently just about as stubborn as me if you ask my wife sometime um, <laughs> so what's helen do she gets down off her mule and she goes to to investigate and what does she and then she's looking around and what does she see but up in a tree on a branch there's a giant mountain lion and there it is and it's ready to spring at her and that's why the mule didn't want to move it didn't want to get any closer to that lion now i mentioned to you that i grew up in far rural northern california and actually we have a lot of mountain lions out there uh bane of the sheep farmers and uh so what you're supposed to do if you ever encounter a lion in the wild is you want to make yourself at, as least like their natural prey, which is a white-tailed deer, as you possibly can. So what you do is you stand up, you put your hands above your head to make yourself as tall as you possibly can be, and you start screaming at them. And, and most of the time, they'll get the idea that you're not a white-tailed deer and they'll leave you alone. In fact, similarly, like in Southeast Asia, when a tiger eats a human or at least eats a human the first time most often it's because that person was squatting on the ground and so from which is the normal pose of a, of a monkey who's down on the ground looking for food or something so to the tiger that human being from behind looks like a monkey which is one of its natural staple main food sources and so that's often why a man-eating tiger will attack a person at least the first time before it gets the, gets a taste for flesh so Similar concept here. You want to be as unlike a wide-tailed deer as you possibly can. Throw your hands up, scream at that lion. What does Helen do? Does she do that? She does not. She backtracks a little bit. She goes around the lion. She goes up the hill. She sneaks up behind that lion. She picks up a big giant rock. And with the strength of her strong right arm, she hurls that rock, hits the lion right in the head, brains the lion, knocks it out of the branch, off the branch, the lion's disoriented. So now what does she do what I would do in that point, at that point, which is like hop on the mule, smack it on the ass and get out of there as fast as I could? Uh, no, not, not Helen Gookins. And this is where I start to say she belongs up there with Pecos Bill and Paul Bunyan. What does Helen do? Well, the lion's disoriented. Helen sprints over to that old farmhouse and, and rips open the shed that's got old rusty farm equipment in it. One of those pieces of rusty farm equipment is an old rusty pitchfork, except this pitchfork is missing a tine. So it's, it, it's not a trident, it's a bident. So, so, so Helen, she grabs this pitchfork and she comes back and now the lion's trying to come at her and she manages to use the pitchfork to hold the lion at bay. It's snarling, it's... It's, you know, scratching her dress to shreds, the whole thing. But she keeps the lion at bay and she's trying to stab it with the pitchfork. But because it's an old rusty pitchfork, it's not sharp enough to get through the lion's hide. But she keeps it away from her and she manages to force it over the edge of the ravine. And the lion goes tumbling down the ravine. And, and now does she, uh, does she leave and escape at this point? Again, no, she doesn't, you know, because she's got goats to protect she's got a message to send to all the other lions out there that might want to eat a gookin's goat helen sprints down that ravine the lions roll to the bottom of the ravine near an old rusty gate helen runs over to the rusty gate 
manages in her adrenaline-fueled mother's super strength, manages to rip an iron bar off that gate and beat the mountain lion to death. Uh, Helen Gukin's mountain lion murderess of the Antelope Valley, she beats that lion to death. She ties it up with her lariat. She throws it over the haunches of her mule. She takes it back to her house. And she skins it and wears its skin like a cape, like Hercules. No, okay, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> that last part, that last part about skinning the lion and wearing its skin like a cape. Now, uh, I made that up, but uh, the rest of that story is 100% true. And um, I first read about it in a newspaper called the Daily Morning Journal and Courier. It's happened on August 3rd, 1905. It was a Thursday, and that's a that's a newspaper out of uh, New Haven, Connecticut, which just goes to show you this was a story that captured the imagination of the entire country. But uh, that's the story of Legend of the American West and Mountain Lion Murderess, Ellen Gukins. I don't think my cat appreciated the Mountain Lion story as he's decided to jump up here on the table. And he let himself <laughs> in the door, which is very smart of him. But uh, I oh, thought it was a cool story. Oh, thank you. It's a beautiful cat. He's actually colored like a lion. I he probably felt like I was talking bad about his family. I, right. What's probably his name? so. <laughs> Freddie. Freddie Fred, Perk. Sorry. We call him Freddie Perkury. Oh, that's cute. That's sorry, Freddie. You know, we would never harm you. You're a sweet boy. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's been absolutely fun having you on, Zevin. I appreciate you taking the time. It's uh it's kinda murdery, K-I-N-D-A murdery. Go subscribe today, leave them a review, and tell them that you heard about them on Hibbley Horror Stories. I'm sure they would appreciate it. They're a new show. They're just starting out, and uh, they they would uh, appreciate all of your support, I'm sure. Very much, just like we so appreciate your support, Jerry. And hey, every, everybody, yes, you can you can find us on all podcasting platforms, on Twitter, on Instagram, at At Kind of Murdery. And, you know, we are so lucky and grateful and thankful that that soon we get to have Jerry on our show as well. So so look out for the, the genius behind uh, Hillbilly Horror Stories to come join us on Kind of Murdery, which we just we just can't wait to have happen. So, uh, Jerry, I can't tell you how happy I am to be here and how thankful I am that you were willing to to share your time time with me and with Kind of Murdery like this. We feel the same way, and I'm sure the audience really loved your stories. They were very entertaining. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right, Zevin, we'll talk to you soon, brother. Sounds good. Yeah, those were some fun stories, and I especially liked, and you people missed out by not being able to see the video of this, uh, at, at least not right now, but when uh, he started talking about the mountain lion and the woman attacking the mountain lion, and then Freddie jumped up on the table and scared <laughs> the crap out of me. Yeah. It's like he didn't like the story. I know. It was like perfect timing. <laughs> Anyway, guys, thank you so much for everything you do for us. It, it never goes unappreciated. We just hope you know that. Yeah, that's so true. And um, we're, like I said, we're blessed and grateful to have you guys in our lives. And we just want to say thank you for hanging with us. And I hope you do for a while longer. Absolutely. We'll talk to you guys later. Have a blessed week. <laughs>